Well, it's a delight and a privilege to be here this morning. Thanks to the pastors and elders inviting me up here to uh, talk about church planning in the Sunday school, to give a little missions moment, and and now to um, look at God's Word together. Um, Let me say, this is not really a church planting sermon. Um, That might be the most until I get to the conclusion that I talk about uh, church planting. Uh, The Lord is pleased to draw more people through church planting than any other single uh, ministry idea or concept, and so we're excited uh, to be a part of that. Uh, For the last couple of years, I've been serving as associate pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and uh, in in some ways this is a, a church plant of Trinity, and in some ways it's not because our launch team and our core group are really made up of several of the, of the PCA churches in the area and uh, perhaps some of the non-PCA churches there. Uh, so what's fun about this is it's not just sort of taking a, a group of people, shaving them off, and you know go to that neighborhood and plant a church, but we're forming a community of believers from different churches that are committing to one another to see what the Lord might do in planting a, a church among us. So I'm grateful uh, for your partnership. Uh, thank you for, again, just letting me be here. Uh, the, the comments about your prayers, I, I really do covet them. That's, that's not just like something, hey, go there and ask for prayers. Uh, April and I, we desperately need them, absolutely. Uh, this task to plant a church is uh, way bigger uh, than anything I can pull off. Uh, so, so please, please pray for us. Um, let's turn to Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 27. We'll go through Mark chapter 8, uh, or Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat in front of you. We'll be looking, I think it's page 844 uh, in that Bible. Mark chapter 8, 27. Please read along uh, as I read, uh, and I want to encourage you about that. And as I'm reading it, uh, just kind of to prime the pump, I'd like to ask you to consider uh, what you see as the problem with American Christianity. Maybe not the problem, but a problem, or one of many significant problems that the church or American Christianity faces, wrestles with, that we struggle with. Uh, Because I think this passage uh, speaks to that, and we'll come to that. So so think about that. Uh, Please pay attention as I read God's Word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. So as we look at this passage, let me tell you right now that this part of Mark is the heart of the gospel. And if you've ever wondered, how can I teach somebody about Jesus or explain who Jesus is, why he came, and any of those things, let me give you three simple words from this passage that you'll be able to communicate with anybody you meet with. Identity, mission, and call. Three words. Identity, mission, and call. The whole of Mark's gospel filters through those three words, identity, mission, and call. The climax is at the cross and the resurrection, certainly, but the heart of the gospel is here at the end of Mark chapter 8. And if you're familiar with the Christian Explored materials, uh, I'm borrowing this outline, identity, mission, and call from them. And so in this passage, we're going to see in verses 27 through 30, the identity of Jesus. In verses 31 through 33, we're going to see the mission of Jesus. And from verses 34 and on, we're going to see the call of Jesus. Now, how can we make that a little more personal? Ask yourselves, what is your identity? Ask yourselves, what is your mission or your purpose in this world? And ask yourself, how are you going to do that? What is the call that that mission and purpose has on your life. And see, as we look at this passage, and whether you've been coming to uh, Grace Covenant for 30 years or longer, or whether this is your first day, whether you grew up in the church or somebody like me converted later in life to following Jesus, or maybe you don't know who Jesus is today, but you're checking out who is this Christian God thing. There is a grand redemptive story going throughout history. A story with Jesus as its center point where he is redeeming people for himself, breaking the back of the curse and the brokenness and the suffering in this world. And how you understand his identity will impact how you understand your identity. How you understand his mission and what he's doing in this world will impact how you understand your mission. And when you hear the call of Christ, it will certainly impact your call too. And so whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's important that you connect the story of your life to this grand story that Jesus is weaving all through history. Well, let's jump right in. Let's look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. You'll see that Jesus is walking, traveling with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Uh-oh. This, this cast is new and I usually, it's just on me. I hold my Bible in my left hand and I do this with my right hand. <laughs> Let me see if I can do it this way. <laughs> Maybe I need to stand on this side. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, Jesus and his disciples. <clears throat> yeah, it's a thumbs up sermon, isn't it? <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Jesus and his disciples have been traveling and going through, uh, on the road for a long time. And they're by Caesarea Philippi, which, if you look on a map, is north, way north of Jerusalem. In fact, it's my understanding that that's as far north as Jesus gets in the Gospel of Mark. And the way that the Gospel of Mark is laid out is Jesus is traveling, and at this point, he makes a turn 
from these remote villages. And the rest of the gospel, he's going towards Jerusalem and, and uh, his cross. And so he's out there. It's kind of like, hey, he's on this retreat. He's traveling. And on the side of the road, there are the disciples. So he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they respond, that you're John the Baptist, the most recent greatest prophet. Or Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of old. Men who sought mercy and justice for the people. Men who spoke the Word of God into a community, into uh, critiquing the religious power brokers of the day. Jesus is being compared into great, amazing company. But then he personalizes the question. Forget about what the other people say. Jesus says, who do you say? That I am. Who do you believe that I am? And as he does that, we instantly think we have a lot of options in our culture. He's a very good teacher. His moralism, his morals, and his ethics are unparalleled. He's a hoax. He's a liar. He's everything that is wrong with the world. He's the Son of God, he's an agent of evil. We live in a time where you can have lots of choices about who Jesus is. And we see here, Peter responds simply, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one who would come to restore Israel to national, international prominence. You are the one who would be the king to sit on the throne and lead God's people. You are the one who is to bring justice to a place where there was injustice. You are the king who would bring mercy to a place where there was no mercy. That's all wrapped up in a simple phrase. You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And so again, I want to ask you the question of utmost importance. Who you say that Jesus is impacts your life on profound ways. In all profound ways. And if he's somebody that you can ignore, he doesn't have anything for me, then that's going to impact who you are, what you do with evil, how you handle suffering, how you handle when things don't go your way, you don't get the job promotion, your, your spouse is distant or cold, your kids aren't being great teenagers, your roommate is a pain to live with, your boyfriend lied to me. It all flows from understanding your identity and understanding the identity of Jesus. Let's continue. Let's move into the mission of Jesus. Verse 31. After giving the identity, he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Suffer, be killed, and on the third day, rise again. One verse, one sentence. Why did Jesus come to this world? He came to suffer. He came to be killed at the hands of the religious elite and to rise again after three days. If you've ever wondered who Jesus is, why he came, what his mission is all about, there it is. From his own words, plainly and clearly. And as you think about this for a minute, realize who, what Jesus has done already. The disciples who Jesus is speaking to have seen Jesus heal lepers, the ancient equivalent of AIDS. 
He has conquered and he has shown power and authority over nature. He has shown power and authority over the spiritual world. He has raised a young dead girl to life. He has taken on the religious power brokers of the day, the people who are the cultural gatekeepers, and actually won and put them in their place. They have seen all of this. And then all of a sudden, the one they say is the Messiah, the Christ, the new king, says he's going to suffer and die. Now, a while back, I was going through this as uh, some devotions with our boys. And I said, boys, what do you think about what's, what's going on there? And, and they said, well, you know, Peter's response is, it's like Jesus takes, Peter takes Jesus aside. He says, hey, Jesus, come here. Come on over here. What you're telling the disciples, that's like bad for morale. You don't want that. My, my 12-year-old said that. He understood what Peter was saying. But do you see what's going on here? There's a collision between Jesus' mission, on the one hand, to suffer and to die, and on the other hand, Peter's mission for Jesus. Jesus has his agenda. Peter has his agenda for Jesus. And it's easy in our American culture to have a Jesus who is, we're grateful for him because he's going to get us out of hell, he's going to put us in heaven, and then we're going to white-knuckle it until we get there. Can you put him in your back pocket and ignore him until the day you die, pull him out, get out of jail free card, I'm going to heaven? That's one of the problems we have with American Christianity. See, what we, don't like about Je- what we do like about Jesus is that he's taking us to heaven. What we don't like about Jesus is that he lays a claim on our lives, that he says, uh-uh, it is no longer your agenda, but my agenda. See, Peter had an agenda. And if I can interpret a little bit, Peter, Peter had this hope that Jesus would throw off the Romans who were occupying the land, return ancient Israel to international prominence, where Rome would not be the center of the world, but Jerusalem would be. And if Jesus was at the center of the king, Peter had a pretty good position waiting for him as one of his close companions, an advisor to the new king. That was the agenda, the mission that Peter had for Jesus. And that's why Jesus rebukes him so strongly, because that was not the mission of God. How how many of us would think in Peter's boots, like, okay, How can I help you die? How can I help you suffer? How can I serve you on your mission, Jesus? That's hard. I I can't say that I would have been there either. But another thing in this passage, as you look at this, when Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer, he's tying two Old Testament figures together. And that would have blown the mind of a good Jew in ancient Israel. On the one hand, he's got the Son of Man, this figure from the Old Testament that is full of power full of majesty, authority, glory, uh, blazing glory, a warrior God, a deity in the Old Testament is the Son of Man. Also in the Old Testament, we have the suffering servants, who at that time they thought was the nation of Israel, the group of people, the community of Jewish people in that time, who would suffer, who would be tormented and tortured, And in one simple phrase, Jesus is saying, here is God, the Son of Man, who will suffer. And I am that God and that human who must suffer. No wonder Peter 
couldn't have understood. No wonder Peter didn't understand what Jesus was doing. He was saying, God is coming to suffer on your behalf. In World War II, there was a Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe, a Roman Catholic priest, uh, was captured by the Nazis for harboring Jewish people uh, in his uh, monastery that he had. And so he was taken to a, a, one of the concentration camps. From there, he moved, they moved him to another one uh, named Auschwitz. And the Germans had a, a very unique method, uh, the Nazis did, of discouraging escape attempts. And so you're kept in a bunkhouse, a whole bunch of men in there. If somebody escaped and made it out of the concentration camp, the Nazis would then take 10 men from that bunkhouse, put them in a starvation bunker until they died. So if you're trying to escape, you have to realize you have just condemned 10 of your bunkmates to death by starvation, one of the most brutal ways to die. So one morning, uh, a man is missing from his bunk. Uh, The commandant of the uh, concentration camp and his sergeant call everybody out. They have them stand at attention all day in the hot sun without food or water to see if that this man could be found and returned, and he's not. And so at dusk, the sergeant begins calling out ten men by name to step forward to go to bunker, uh, starvation bunker number 13. I don't know if that means they had 12 other starvation bunkers, but they were efficient in their killing, to say the least. A man steps forward. His name is called Frank Gajanacek. And he cries out in Polish, I have a wife, I have children, I just wanted to survive this war and go back to them. And it's at that moment that Maximilian Kolbe, down the line, steps forward and points to him. And the commandant screams out, what does this Polish pig want? And so the sergeant comes over and he says, me for him. He has a family and I do not. The Nazis were stunned. And the commandant thought for a moment and said, okay. And Frank Dejanicek went back in line. Maximilian Kolbe, without ever saying a word to one another, went to starvation bunker number 13. Frank Dejanicek went on to live well into his 80s or 90s. And he writes, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on. The immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live. And someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me. A stranger. Is this some dream? I was saved. And I owe to him the fact that I could tell you all this. The news quickly spread around the camp. It was the first and the last time that such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. About two weeks later, Maximilian Kolbe died. Uh, actually by lethal injection in starvation bunker number 13 uh, because he hadn't starved to death yet with four men who were still remaining. And so in this picture, this phrase, the Son of Man must suffer, we find the beauty and the wonder of a God who would leave his throne in heaven to come and suffer on this earth And in that picture, that interchange between Maximilian and Frank and the Commandant, we see the power and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. An innocent man 
becomes condemned so that a condemned man might go free. That is the story of Jesus. And let me say, connect your story, your life story, to his. And you will find that as your sin, as your conscience, as your life story unfolds, those things you've said, those things you haven't said, those things you've done, those things you should have done, as they weigh on you as a terrible burden, hear the story of a Polish priest in an impossible situation and see Jesus Christ offering redemption and freedom to you and for you. Well, as we continue, let's go on to verse 34 and look at the mission or the call of Jesus. We've done identity. We've done mission. Let's look at the call of Jesus. And you'll see there in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Let me just pause there because I think this is starting to speak to, remember I, I said that a problem, a significant problem with American Christianity is that we do identity of Jesus very well. Yeah, Son of God, Savior of sinners, Lord of lords. We do that great. The mission of Jesus, yeah, we understand that. He came here to save and redeem his people. We don't do the call well. And here's one of the reasons why we don't do the call well, is our approach to evangelism, our approach to reaching out, our approach to presenting the gospel, we dwell on the first two without doing the third. But look what Jesus does. Who does he call? He called the crowd. And so whatever he wanted to say next, he wanted the crowd, not just the disciples to hear. See, usually we do the call once people are in. Okay, hey, Jesus is going to save you from your sin. By the way, he's calling you to die. We, we do that after. Jesus is doing that on the front end. This is what a disciple means. Come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, said, when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so as we look, continue on this passage, we see that Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Okay, now, I immediately go to the cross of Jesus, but I'm not sure that's what they would have done. Because they didn't, it wasn't in their mind that Jesus was going to die on a cross quite yet. So what Jesus is doing, okay, pick up your lumber, your instrument of death, and follow me. Literally, he's saying, if you want to follow me, you will die. You will die. Come and follow me. But, and, and this is why, I, I, one of the reasons I love Jesus, he's so counterintuitive. Because he says, y'all have been living self-centered agendas and lives, and you're trapped by it, and it doesn't fulfill, it doesn't satisfy, and so... We worship and we go in different directions with our idolatry. Yeah, Jesus is getting me out of heaven, but yet I'm going to live my life worshiping these things. When they don't go well, I'm going to complain about it. Because my agenda for Jesus in blessing me is not being met. But Jesus is saying, you want real life? Lose your own agenda. Die to the right to live your life your way. And live it to the story of Jesus And what's counterintuitive, it's in dying that you truly find life. There was a novel that came out a number of years ago by David Lodge. Uh, It's called Therapy. And the main character in it is a guy named Tubby who's having a a midlife crisis. Actually, he's 58, so it's sort of a a later-in-life crisis. He's a Brit. Uh, He has a wildly successful TV show. 
And uh, he's just gone to all kinds of therapists, uh, psychotherapists, um, aromatherapists, self-esteem therapists, whatever, to try and figure out the noise in his head. And so he writes here, and this is from a review, uh, the National Review. Alexandra, his, um, his current counselor, thinks I'm suffering from lack of self-esteem. She's probably right, though I read in the paper that there's a lot of it about. There's something like an epidemic of lack of self-esteem in Britain at the moment. Maybe it has something to do with the recession. That was actually the previous <laughs> recession. Uh, he himself, however, is doing all right. His TV show is a hit, and he has plenty of money. So he is a, a little at a loss when he has to make up a list for Alexandra of the good things and the bad things in his life. So he takes out his yellow legal pad, puts a line down the middle, left-hand side, good column, right-hand side, bad column. Under the good column, I wrote, professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched in adult life, nice house, great car, and as many holidays as I want. Okay. Now, let me say, there is nothing wicked or sinful or evil in that list. I would pray that list for every one of my family and friends. What a fabulous blessing to have that. Actually, I'd be happy for four of them myself. (laughs) Under the bad column, I wrote just one thing. Feel unhappy most of the time. Here's a man who had everything, was living by his agenda, and yet it didn't satisfy the deepest longings of his heart and of his soul. And as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus is critiquing David Lodge, and he's critiquing us for living our lives by our agenda, making an agenda for Jesus, rather than allowing the agenda, Jesus' own agenda, to drive our mission and our call. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I think the the David Lodge novel speaks powerfully to that point. And you and I live in a place where we worship those, perhaps those eight items. And we think, if I get those eight items, then I'll be okay but they're elusive because they are not God. They do not satisfy. And as we go to plant a church in Chesapeake, a simple phrase from Victor Hugo's uh, book, Les Miserables, is one of our catchphrases to describe the gospel going into Chesapeake. Life's greatest happiness is to be convinced we are loved. Those eight items that I read do not actually love Tubby. Jesus loves you and I. It's only in the gospel that you and I can truly be convinced that we are loved. Now, it goes on here for a couple more verses about all of this being ashamed. Verse 38, Forever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his angels and the Heavenly Father. And it's here often that it's possible for a guy like me to kind of take the Bible and and hit you all over the head with it. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. He won't be ashamed of you. I'd I'd rather take it from a different direction. 
like to think about the last time you graduated or you were at a graduation. I think at my university graduation, I, I started over here and went over there. You know, you're alphabetical, you're getting the degree, it's scripted, it's prompted. Um, how does it go? Left, uh, I don't know, right hand shake, grab the diploma over the top, or one of those ways. You've got like 1.3 seconds to get up there, smile, get your picture, and then get off the stage. But as you open that diploma up, you'll see that whatever academic institution it is, is conferring honors and privileges, uh, however the language might be, upon the alumnus. That we have given you our stamp of approval, you have completed whichever degree program it is, and you are now an alumnus of this fine institution with all the rights and privileges attended to. Jesus Christ, in the same way, when you connect your story to his, puts his stamp of approval on you. And because of his son, is not ashamed of you. And so very, in a very real way, Jesus transforms our identity from loser, mean, broken, nobody wants me, nobody loves me, I'm a jerk. Whatever your identity might be, these things always happen to me. Jesus says, you are my daughter. You are my son. You I love. You I have died for. You I will never leave nor forsake. You, there is nothing that will separate you from me. What a powerful message that is to take into a place like Chesapeake. So in wrapping up, let me just say that if somebody ever asks you, what is it, who is this Jesus, what's he doing? You can go to Mark chapter 8. You can say, here's his identity, here's his mission, here's his call. How can you connect your life to his? The Son of Man must suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day rise again. Come and follow me, and I will give you abundant and rich and beautiful life. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he didn't stay in heaven, but came to this earth and suffered. Lord, we thank you that God himself died for us. And so we pray, give you praise and glory. Amazing. Is this like our our friend... um, Uh, from the concentration camp. Is this a dream? I was saved. We thank you that uh, you, without sin, have died in our place, sent condemned people free. So, Lord, I do pray that you would help us to follow you, call us uh, in richer, deeper ways into the calling, uh, the mission that you have uh, to come and redeem a people for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.